Thank you. Please do uh, have a seat, and if you've got a Bible, open it to page 841 of the Church Bibles, to Ezekiel chapter 16. We are going to be continuing our series looking through this magnificent book of Ezekiel, and tonight we come to the most uh, shocking chapter in the entire book, if not the entire Bible. Um, So we need a bit of context. We need to remember what's going on before we dive in and read this parable. Ezekiel prophesied around 600 years before Jesus, uh, and at that time, the nation of Israel was probably at the lowest point of its entire history. Uh, Israel was God's chosen nation, They were chosen by him, they were rescued by him, they were loved by him, and they were given these unique promises that from them would come salvation to the entire world. Um, But at this point in Israel's history, they are in a crisis. They had chosen to rebel against God, to ignore God, and for hundreds of years, they did not listen to him. And so in an act of judgment in 592 BC, God sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they sacked the city. They took most of the residents off as prisoners into Babylon. Ezekiel himself was one of the exiles, and and as he prophesies in this book, it's to his fellow prisoners in Babylon. Now, You may remember from last week that almost everyone at this time thought that because Jerusalem hadn't been completely destroyed, because the temple was still standing, and because there were still some people left in Jerusalem, then there would be hope. Hope of returning to the city. Hope of God's promises still standing. But God's message through the prophet Ezekiel has been one of judgment and one of doom. He wants the exiles, the prisoners in Babylon, to know that they are not going to return back to Jerusalem, because God is going to destroy the city completely. For five years, that was Ezekiel's message. Judgment is coming on Jerusalem. Judgment is coming. Don't put your hope in going back to the city. Don't put your hope in this city. And, and what God is trying to do in Ezekiel is he's trying to wean the exiles off of Jerusalem. He wants them to look at that city and to see what they have done in their history and to say, never again will we do that. Five years Later, 586 BC, God sent the Babylonians back. They destroyed the temple. They left the city in ruins and they killed the remaining residents. Now, as we come to Ezekiel 16, we're going to read a very long parable, the longest parable, the longest prophetic oracle in the Bible, in which God explains to the exiles and to us today why Jerusalem's sin was so bad in his eyes and why it warranted this complete destruction. And the intention is that the exiles will hear this, and they will understand why God is doing what he is doing. In this parable, we're going to see a picture of what all sin is like in God's eyes. Let me warn you, it's shocking, and it's offensive, because that's what sin is like to God. Ezekiel 16 then, let's read it. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. 
Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed you by and saw you kicking in your blood. And, I, uh, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on the count of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. You took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided you, the fine flour, olive, and honey, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat. You offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. And all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a, a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughter of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. 
Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you build your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of a woman who commits adultery and who sheds blood. I will bring upon you the blood of vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will become no longer angry because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things. I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. And you're a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father was an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria who lived to the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all the things that you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters because your sins were more vile than theirs. They appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace. For you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them, 
so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done and given them comfort. And your sister Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters will return to what they were before. And you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom and all their neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practice, practices, declares the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking my covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. Okay, well, let's pray for God's help as we look at this passage of Scripture together. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We do not need to speculate. We do not need to try and work you out and figure what you are like because you have made yourself known so clearly. You spoke to the exiles through Ezekiel. You speak to us today through that same word. Father, we ask therefore for your help to understand it, to apply it to our lives. May we never dismiss what you have said, but may we take it so seriously. May we be ashamed of our sin. And yet, Father, may we be amazed at your grace that you would pour out such love to those of us who deserve nothing. Father, help us, we pray this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's not the preacher's go-to text. Um, I can't imagine Bishop Curry was looking at this text before the royal wedding yesterday. Um, there was a lot of talk about the love of God, which is great. Um, but maybe there's a bit of a misunderstanding with what that means. People love the idea of the love of God. And the reason they love it is because we think that we're so lovable and God should love us if he's to be good. The love of God is a scandalous thing in the Bible. And the reason is because we are so unlovable and so wretched in his eyes. And yet despite that, he will bestow love on us that is unlike anything else. And this is where a passage like Ezekiel 16 helps us understand the greatness of God's love. And it does, show, does so by showing us the horror and the depth of sin in God's eyes. Now, I want to, this is, um, this is a, the most explicit, sexually explicit passage in the entire Bible. It's been tremendously toned down by the NIV translation. If you've got an ESV, you'll see some of the, the words there and how it should be read. Um, but I want to put a few caveats on this before we look at it in detail because um, it is 
a very um, shocking passage. First thing just to remember about this, we need to remember it's a parable, okay? Uh, in other words, this is a metaphor. This means that we must be careful that we don't take the imagery too far. A metaphor is there to illustrate and to help us feel one particular truth in a different way to just simply describing it. It's not a complete picture, but it's an, it's an illustration of one aspect, namely how Jerusalem's sin made God feel. That's what this is trying to convey. If God just said, you're a sinner, it would be anywhere near as effective uh, as this parable is here. Secondly, this is intended to shock. You are to be offended. You are to be shocked by what God says here. That's what the exiles were meant to feel so that they would not go back to Jerusalem, so they would not think that, that Jerusalem was great in the good old days. They are to be shocked at her sin. It's not a very PG passage, and it's not meant to be PG. Not all parts of the Bible are appropriate for the Sunday school class, you know. Not all are appropriate for children. Think of a film like Schindler's List. Um, that film is rated as a 15 for a reason. Uh, it's in order to convey the, the shock and the horror of something like the Holocaust, it had to employ upsetting images appropriate for an older audience. And, and that's the case with Ezekiel 16. It employs this kind of shocking image to convey Jerusalem's sin. Thirdly, and I think this is really important to say, this is not an attack on females or on female sexuality. Jerusalem is portrayed here as an adulterous wife, but this parable is not making out that somehow women are more promiscuous than men. Uh, we know that men are frequently, if not more often, called out for their sexual sin in the Bible. Uh, in other places, Jerusalem or Israel is seen as a disobedient son. In fact, in the previous chapter of Ezekiel, Israel is portrayed as a fruitless vine. Uh, so God is no more anti-women here than he is anti-grapes in that previous chapter. The, the whole Bible actually holds women in such a, a high regard by placing them, uh, men and women, as equals made in God's image. And in fact, if you read the Gospels, Jesus gave women a prominence that was unheard of at the time. The first people to be responded to the gospel of Jesus and be saved were thieves and sinners and sex workers. Ezekiel 16 is a metaphor to describe what these people's sin was like in God's eyes. And to that end, there are three big purposes that this parable wants to achieve. As God seeks to wean his people off of Jerusalem, they're to remember, they're to be ashamed, and they're to be astounded. Firstly, be aware, remember God's loving treatment of you, Jerusalem. Secondly, be ashamed at how you have treated God and thirdly, be astounded at God's amazing grace. And I hope that something of these three things will be felt tonight, that, that we will remember the great things that God has done for us. And that in turn will cause us to be ashamed of our sin. Not so that it will lead us to an introspective despair, but so that we can marvel at his amazing atoning grace. Firstly then, be aware of God's loving treatment of you. That's what God's message is, is in the first 14 verses. Be aware of God's loving treatment of you. God talks about the finding of Jerusalem uh, find, being comparable to finding a baby on a rubbish dump. 
Uh, Jerusalem was originally a pagan city, says there, and your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. They were a pagan city that was neglected by their pagan parents. And in the days before systematic abortion, the way that you would get rid of a child that you didn't want was to throw them on a rubbish dump. But in this image, God walks by. On the dump, he sees the child wallowing in her blood. And he takes her and he cleans her and he says to her, live. He saves her. And as God in the history of Israel rescued his people and brought them out of Egypt and brought them to this once pagan city of Jerusalem, he made them into a city where he was going to live with them. This was the center of God's salvation plans for the world. He made them grow and live and flourish. Verse 8 is an, an image here of a marriage ceremony. God made promises to them that the metaphor changes. The baby has become the bride now. He made a covenant with them. He promised that he would dwell amongst them, that he would use them to bless the world. He promised that from them would come a king who would establish the kingdom of God forever. He promised to be their God and they were to be his people He loved them. He cared for them. He took this weak, helpless little tribe. He took this abandoned baby and he made her into a queen. Look at verse 12. God's grace and his kindness are outrageously extravagant. Verse 12. I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you're adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. Apparently that was a delicacy back then. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on the account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Do you know this image of gold and silver and of fine linen? It's very similar to the description that is given to the materials used to build the tabernacle. And that was the place where God lived prior to the temple. And it's as if God is saying that, that Jerusalem, I made you beautiful. You were beautiful because I was with you. Think back on Israel's history to the reign of King Solomon when Israel had peace on all sides and they were as numerous as the stars. When the beauty of Jerusalem was was drawing in the world, they wanted to see this great city. How great is the grace of God to these people? Not only does he rescue his bride, but he adorns her with, with precious gifts. The the kindness of of the God of the Bible is so wonderfully extravagant. It's so outrageously excessive. But the greatness of Jerusalem came not through the gifts that she had, but through the God that she had. And what happened? She forgot. Verse 15, you trusted in your beauty. She forgot grace. Think about how great a thing God did here for these people, for this city. But as great as that is, it's nothing compared to what Jesus has done for his church. 
The picture of a helpless, abandoned baby rescued by God, called to, to live. The image of going from a, a pauper to a princess, from death to life, is exactly the kind of image that describes what Jesus has done for his church. This radical transformation that God has lavished upon sinners like you and me, this unimaginable extravagance of grace. Just flip forward to Ephesians 2. We've been in Ephesians many times. But in your Bible, flip forward to Ephesians 2 just to see this image used in the New Testament. Page 1174. That's what Paul says of the church, of us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is incredible. That change if you follow Jesus, don't you see what God has done? You and me were on a path to eternal judgment, eternal hell, and God intervened and he said, no, dead in sins, but he cried out, live. And what did he adorn us with? He, he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. He, he crowns us with his love and kindness. He adopts us. Objects of wrath have now become beloved children. And yet how often we complain when things don't go our way. How often do we dare think that God does not care about me? We have forgotten. Oh my, look at what we forget. We mustn't forget this wonderful gospel. Forget that the thing that makes the church beautiful is the, the beauty of its gospel, of the one who dwells there. Not its relevance or its trendiness. It's this gospel, this gospel of grace. And the application of, of these verses in Ezekiel is remember. Remember the, the wonderful gospel, the transformation. I need to remember this every single day because I forget it. That's why Jesus tells us to eat the bread and drink the wine. Because we get so caught up in our selfishness and our own tiny little problems that we lose sight of the incredible thing that he has done for us. What more could he do? He gives us himself. He gives us his creation. This is what we must remember. This is what Jerusalem forgot. And when you forget grace, then pride will reign. And that's a damning thing. Jerusalem needs to remember how God treated her so that she can be utterly appalled at how she treated him. Second point, be ashamed then of how you treat God. The image of God's unconditional love 
uh, to his wife is there to set up the horror of what sin is like in God's eyes. Marriage is, marriage is one of the most powerful God-given images that, that God uses all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation to describe his relationship with his people. And sex within marriage is one of the most intimate forms of union. To desecrate that is therefore the most heartbreaking betrayal. And that's why God dares to use this image of an unloving, nymphomaniac wife to describe his feelings of betrayal. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, And you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And then this language of prostitution just dominates the rest of the story. Verse 15 to 20 describe Israel's uh, prostituting themselves after other gods. Rather than, than giving thanks to God for all that he did, they turned their backs on him and they chased after these other gods from these other nations. And it wasn't a one-off. It's the hallmark of Jerusalem's history. They built temples to foreign gods. They gave their food to foreign gods. They worshipped dumb idols. They ignored the God who was speaking to them all the time, who was warning them not to do it. And perhaps worst of all, verse 20. This is where it's not a metaphor. They sacrificed their own children. They killed them. In pursuit of these foreign gods. Did you notice in the verses the repeated word my? God saying all my things, my gifts, my children. You gave them to other gods. It's not just a religious prostitution. It's it's a political prostitution. That's what's described in in verse 23 to to 24. Woe, woe Woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickednesses, you built a mound for yourself. You made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed you by. He goes on to talk about the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Jerusalem would rather pursue them than God himself. And the language of that passage is extremely graphic. And I think the translators of the NIV are trying to spare our blushes. And you should hear it because in all of this, God is trying to get us to understand how sin is repugnant and how it makes him feel. Some of you may have been, some of you may be here and you may have been stood up on a date and you know you felt the pain of rejected love and it hurts some of you might even be here and and you know what it is to be married to someone who's cheated on you and, and you know that pain maybe but imagine this being married and then on your wedding night your spouse goes and sleeps with someone else in fact for your whole marriage They wantonly flirt with others and sleep around unashamedly. They abuse the good that you give them and they would even kill your own children so that they could flirt with others. 
just to feed this nymphomaniac lifestyle. And you see, and God says actually in verse 34, actually it's worse than prostitution. At least the prostitute does it for money, but you pay Jerusalem. How would you react? How, how should a holy and just God react? The exiles are to hear this and to be ashamed. Be ashamed of what this city does, did so that they will not look with this idealized view of Jerusalem. They are to see how inevitable her judgment is and say, never again, never again will we do what she has done to God. And what we've been saying through this series in Ezekiel is that these first 24 chapters describing why the fall of Jerusalem is happening are there as a warning to all God's people throughout the ages. The church must not profane God's glory by cheating on him. The practice of multi-faith services, the relativizing of God so that he is one amongst many, the disobedience to the clarity of God's word, they are all forms of spiritual adultery. And they're done out of a lust to appear more relevant to society when the church offers herself for the idols of cultural acceptance over and above God's honor. That is a shameful thing. Never again. But here's the thing with this passage. It's easy to point the finger, but Jerusalem's downfall came because of her pride. She trusted in her beauty. And therefore, we have to look at ourselves. If any Christian is proud and self-righteous, then they've forgotten grace. And this picture of Jerusalem's sin is like a picture of all sin. Make no mistake, if you're here, if you're visiting tonight for the first time, there's an intense Bible passage to come in on. I understand that. But make no mistake, we're all sinners here. We've not got it sorted. We're sinners. Sin is idolatry. And idolatry is just when you put something else in the place of Jesus in your life. And it can be subtle. You claim to to love Jesus, but in reality, the thing you really love is your money, your family, your relationships, your status, even worse, yourself. And these are good things, aren't they? And it's good to love them to a degree, but they are never to take the place of God. Ask yourself honestly, what's the one thing you feel in life you need to have to give your life value and meaning? That's your God. That's what you love. That's what you will sacrifice for. Every time you pursue that, you you say to Jesus, you're not enough to come to church and to sing about how all we need is Christ and then throughout the entire week to give no thought to him. Do you see, do you know what sin is? It's not just breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart. It's pushing God to the edge despite all that he's done. This is a problem and we need to be more ashamed of it, not because we fear we might get caught out, but because it shows how we mistreat our Savior. Sinning against God is a form of spiritual adultery. But here's the thing about being a Christian. It's about acknowledging that you are messed up and feeling the shame of sin. But that is never done as a form of self-pity. It's done as part of the first stage of repentance. The shame of sin leads someone who's a follower of Jesus to, to come on their knees in repentance before God. We remember and we repent. That's what we do all the time, every day. 
We repent and we ask God to forgive us. When was the last time you repented? See, God does not want perfection from his people. He wants us to be aware of how messed up we really are, of how we've hurt him in our sin, so that we will lean completely on him as our basis for forgiveness and acceptance. Psalm 52 states, the sacrifices that God delights in are broken spirits and contrite hearts. Be ashamed of what sin does to God. Let me sum up briefly the rest of the section because I want to look at uh, how God finishes it. What follows in verse 35 to 42 is God's description of the punishment that Jerusalem will face at the hands of her enemies. The, the metaphor kind of gets blended with reality. If they want to behave like a pagan nation, God will treat them like a pagan nation. God's judgment is often to give people what they want. And then in verse 44 to 58, we have this very interesting section in which God calls Jerusalem uh, the sister of Samaria and Sodom. You see that in verse 46? Um, God calls uh, them the sister of Samaria. Samaria was the, the northern part of Israel. It was renowned for its idolatry, renowned for turning away from God. And here's what you'd think. If you were a Jerusalemite, the two worst places in the world were Samaria and Sodom. Samaria for a Jerusalemite was terrible. They, they were the apostate people. They didn't have the throne of David or the temple. They were the idolaters. They were the epitome of spiritual failure. And Sodom, Sodom was the epitome of moral failure. It's interesting to note that the thing that God picks up on here in verse 49 is Sodom's pride and lack of care for the poor. And so everyone in Jerusalem thought they were the worst. And God's saying, no, they're your sisters. You're, you're exactly the same. In fact, you've made them look good with your sin. Those who don't think that their sin is that bad and look down on others worse than them are often the ones in the biggest danger. Blinded by their pride. Be ashamed of your sin. You know, in verse 30 here, the translation uh, that we've got says, how weak-willed you are. A better translation of that is, how sick is your heart? And I know today that if you saw my heart, you would probably say that of me. If you could really see it, all of it in its fullness, that's not hidden, how sick it is, and God sees it, but praise God, because our Savior Jesus Christ came and said that he has not come to call those who are healthy, but those who are sick. And the more you become aware of how bad your sin is, the more you'll be amazed at how great his grace is. And this passage just takes a huge U-turn at the end. God's grace just pulls the rug out from under your, your feet. What on earth is all this in verse 53? I will restore Sodom and Samaria and Jerusalem. The very worst I will restore them, God says. Where's this come from? It's just completely out of the blue. Just as they were equal in their failure and their fall, so too shall they be equal in their restoration. You see, God is a God of grace. And, and whilst Jerusalem will answer for her sin, and she did, there's this determined faithfulness from God 
to keep that promise. They broke the marriage vow, but he will keep it. He will keep his promise. Israel might have forgotten, but he will not forget. And just look at how this passage ends in verse 60. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways, and you will be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger, I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all that you have done, you will remember and be ashamed, and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. God is faithful despite his people's faithlessness. And you know that that promise, right at the end of this huge parable of sin and failure, that promise traces the storyline of the Bible, of the Old Testament, that promise of a new covenant, that promise of an atonement and forgiveness and new life. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And so the question that has always been asked is, how can he do it? How can he forgive sin and yet remain just and punish in our sin. How can he destroy my sin without destroying me? And the answer to that conundrum came 600 years later. On the night before his execution, Jesus took a cup of wine in his hands. And he turned to his disciples and he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus brought about this promise, this new covenant, one that didn't eradicate the old but fulfilled it, a new promise that is marked by forgiveness. And as Jesus died the following day on that cross, forgiveness was achieved for all who would accept it. Atonement was made for all people. How? In his death, Jesus takes the punishment that our adulterous hearts deserve so that we could be free from any condemnation. Our sin is still punished, but instead of us being punished, he is punished in our place. We sin, he atones. That is the gospel of Jesus. We sin, he atones. Let me put it as shocking as this. If that's true, if Jesus became my sin, and he was punished so that I could get his acceptance. If that's true, that means Jesus becomes like the adulterous wife in Ezekiel 16 and suffers her punishment so that we, the church, could become his beautiful bride. See, it's not just forgiveness, his kindness. And his grace are so lavish. He makes us pure. He makes us spotless. He adopts us. We who deserve nothing but his judgment. That's why the love that Jesus has for his church is the ultimate picture of marriage. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything 
any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We sin. He atones. As shocking as that portrayal of sin is in Ezekiel 16, it's nowhere near as shocking as the portrayal of grace that we see on the cross. Jesus turns the prostitute into a bride. Do you know, a marriage that is broken by adultery is, is a painful and hurtful thing. But a marriage where there is commitment and where there is honesty is an amazing thing. And that's what everyone can have in Christ if they come to him. And as Revelation 19 states, one day we will see him fully, be presented to him at the wedding supper of the Lamb as his bride, perfected despite our sin, spotless, pure. We who have offended God so much will be his treasured possession, saved by his grace, adopted into his family, united to his son, sealed with his spirit, lavished with his love, perfected through his atonement, and exalted as his bride. That's how amazing his grace is for a wretch like me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this honest and difficult and shocking and scandalous passage on how you view the sin of Jerusalem. And yet in it we see a picture of all our sin, how we make promises to be faithful to you and yet we so often break them. And Father, we ask for forgiveness and repentance we want to feel the shame of sin, not so that we can be self-pitying, not so that we can be drawn just to look at ourselves, but so that we can be drawn to look at the one who makes atonement for those sins. So we ask forgiveness for our sin. And we do so broken by it, but also confident and secure. For such is the nature of your grace that we can confidently say that our sin has been dealt with, that Jesus has made perfect atonement and that one day he will present us all as his church, pure, spotless, with no blemish, but perfect in holiness. Not because we have done it, but because he has done it for us. We sin and you have atoned. We thank you for that great gospel. May we never lose sight. May we never forget that great sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could have these wonderful privileges of grace. In his name, amen.